0: This is a podcast from the Open University Centre for Law. I'm Mark Cornock. And I'm Phil Bates. We're discussing, is it against the law to do research on individuals without their consent? What if a person can't consent, can someone else consent on their
1: behalf? Phil, what's your perspective on this? Well, I think it depends what kind of research we're talking about and what kind of people we're talking about. Um, somebody might be unable to consent to research for a whole variety of reasons, Uh, young children and also people suffering from diseases, disabilities, people with learning disabilities or Alzheimer's disease. Now, many people in all of those categories may actually be able to consent to research. They may understand what's proposed. They may be able to participate in the decision. But in other cases, somebody may not be able to make their own decision. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean – that we shouldn't be doing research on them. There may be good reasons to do research, but we do have to be very careful. We have to make sure that the level of risk that those people are exposed to is limited. We have to make sure that the research that's done on them is not an exploitation of them. So are we talking about a legal issue here or an ethical issue? I think it's a mixture. My interest in this area arose when I worked at the the Law Commission in the early 1990s. I was doing a project on the law relating to the treatment of incapacitated adults. So we were looking at under what circumstances uh, an incapacitated adult could receive standard medical treatment, whether they could receive um, treatment that was contraceptive to prevent pregnancy uh, or even an abortion without their consent in their own best interests, Uh, end of life care Uh, relating to cases like the Tony Bland case where the decision was being made as to whether to withdraw a feeding tube from someone at the end of their life when they couldn't participate in the decision. So most of the issues were around the treatment of incapacitated adults. But one of the issues that came up while we were doing that was if we can treat these people in their best interests, what about research? Should we be able to do research on people at all Should we be able to do research on them only if we think that it's benefiting them in some way? Or should there be situations where we can do research which is not directly beneficial to the individual, but perhaps it helps other people in a similar situation? So we had to think about all of those issues, and eventually, as a result of that project, the Mental Capacity Act includes provisions relating to whether it's lawful to carry out research on an incapacitated adult. Um, At the same time as those changes in the law, there's a whole range of ethical guidance which helps to clarify how those kind of decisions should be made as to whether to include an incapacitated person in a research project, what kinds of safeguards are necessary, who else should be involved in the decision. And finally, in order for any research project to be approved by a research ethics committee, there's going to have to be some consideration not only of the lawfulness of the research but also of the ethical questions. So there's a mixture there of legal and ethical issues. So when
0: you say there should be some safeguards involved, what kind of safeguards are you thinking of?
1: Well, one of the safeguards is going to be the role of the Research Ethics Committee. So we have uh, a system in this country which is quite mixed But we have National Health Service Research Ethics Committees which relate to research on patients and and NHS employees – Uh, We also have university ethics committees which approve research being conducted in the academic setting and we also have a range of other types of research ethics committees that deal with particular kinds of research in particular sectors. So one of the safeguards is the idea that research ethics committees should not approve research if it's too dangerous or too exploitative. Now, in some areas that may work quite well, some other ethics committees, it's less clear how independent they are, it's less clear how much expertise they have to assess these things. And even if a research ethics committee has approved something, there's always a risk that the researcher may actually go off and do something quite different. So the research ethics committee is a really important part of the safeguards, but it's not necessarily a guarantee. Um, The other kinds of safeguards we might include would be the role for um, somebody who knows the incapacitated person to protect their interests. Um, In the incapacitated adult situation, you might have somebody who's close to them, a carer, a relative, someone who can look out for their interests. In the other situation where we're dealing with children, then you're almost always going to have a person with parental responsibility – And getting the consent of the person with parental responsibility may be an important safeguard for the interests of children. We hope that parents would not agree for their children to be subjects to research without thinking about the risks and without looking into the issues. But in some contexts, we wonder whether parents have all the information Uh, We wonder whether they perhaps are agreeing to the research because they think there's some benefit to their child from the research when in fact the the, the benefits may be very small or non-existent and the burdens may be higher than the parent realises.
0: Do you think that you're putting forward a controversial view that many people would say that non-therapeutic
1: research on people who can't benefit shouldn't go ahead? Yes, I think this view is controversial. Some people would say... If you're doing something to a person, then either you need that person's consent and if they can't consent, you shouldn't do anything to them unless it's intended directly to benefit that person. So doing something to someone without their consent in order to improve other people's lives is an exploitation of that individual, is an abuse of that individual, that it should be unlawful and that anyone who does it is unethical and perhaps illegal. Now, that's a very strong protective view of the rights of individuals. Um, If somebody can't consent for themselves, then we we may need to do things to them to benefit them. We may need to care for them, treat them, but we shouldn't be using them in research unless they stand to directly benefit. That's a a very protective view. Now, my problem with that view is that if we're trying to improve the quality of care for people who can't consent – then I think we do have a responsibility to do good ethical research to see what works and what doesn't. Otherwise, the standard of care is going to be stuck at a particular point and it may be very hard to improve things. Now, we might be able to do research on people who can consent and then improve the quality of care for other people on the basis of that. So if we can do the research with people who can consent, then we should. We shouldn't be doing research on people who cannot consent unless they're the only people upon whom we could do it. But if, for instance, we're trying to test whether a particular medication works on very young children, um, we may know it works on adults, but we have no idea what dosage is, what effectiveness it would have with young children. Then we may need to carry out research with those children. Otherwise, they won't benefit from the development of that medication. The other concern I have is that if somebody is incapacitated, they may still have a view about their care. So someone who's living in a care home, someone who has a learning disability, someone who has Alzheimer's disease, they they may not be able to understand fully what's proposed in the research project. They may not be able to give a fully valid consent to taking part in the research but they may be able to answer questions. They may be able to tell you what it's like for them, what they like, what they don't like, how they feel about their situation. Now, that research may not directly benefit that individual. They may enjoy the fact that they've had a chance to express their view. On the other hand, they may find it burdensome and distressing. Um, now, in the course of the interview, perhaps if the person starts to become upset, you, you should stop and give them some more time or, or, or not ask them any more questions. But you, you don't go into that research thinking that you're going to benefit the incapacitated person. Uh, if it happens at all, that's an incidental benefit. What you're trying to do is to find out what their life is like, to give them a voice to improve the quality of care that people receive. Now, the level of risk and burden for that person may be very small. Now, it seems to me that if we can carry out research which improves the situation of incapacitated people or children in general and we can do that in a way that doesn't harm the individual, then I think there's a good argument for doing the research. Even if we don't have consent and even if it doesn't benefit them directly.
0: How can we protect the individual who can't consent whether it's a child or incapacitated adult from harm? What about the rogue researcher who who may say they're going to do one form of research and actually the research takes a, a different form altogether?
1: Well, I think rogues are always going to be a problem. The rogue GP, the rogue social worker, the rogue academic could always do a lot of damage. Um, to some extent we need robust systems of supervision by colleagues. We need reporting systems so that if adverse events occur, we we get some sense that something's going wrong here. So we can't necessarily have a system that prevents any possible form of maltreatment or abuse. But it seems to me that people who are going through the proposal of putting forward an idea to a research ethics committee, explaining what they're going to do, having information forms that are given to relatives perhaps, having the the data being scrutinized by academic colleagues and others, in that situation, the risk of abuse is probably much less than someone who's just going off and doing bad things who who isn't doing it in the context of research. So I think we should be aware of that risk. But I don't think we should have such a, a nervous attitude that we say because there is that risk of abuse, we should stop all research, which potentially benefits individuals. I think we should definitely be looking out for risk of harm, both when the research is proposed, when it's being looked at by the ethics committee, and by the researcher when they're carrying it out. If you start doing research believing that it's harmless, believing that the risks involved are very small, but actually during the course of the research, it becomes obvious that it's distressing or that it's causing problems for people, then that's a, a reason for stopping. So you need ethically responsible researchers. The fact that you've got approval from an ethics committee doesn't take away the responsibility to carry out the research itself in an ethical way and also a legal way. But shutting down all research and saying we're not going to do research on children because they can't consent and we can't accept parental consent, shutting down research on incapacitated adults because they can't consent – and it's not in their interests, and nobody else should be allowed to consent. I think that would just be too restrictive. And in the end, it would hurt children, it would hurt incapacitated adults. So do you think the current system provides the adequate protection that you agree these individuals need? I think there are always going to be ways that the system can be improved. You're always looking for a balance between protection and also the benefits of research. So There are probably ways the system could be improved in both directions. There are ways in which the system needs to be more effective in protecting people. There are also ways in which research needs to be facilitated. Good quality ethical research needs to be encouraged. So for instance, at the moment, we have a system which is very mixed. We have the National Health Service Research Ethics Committees, which are the only committees that can approve research on incapacitated adults. Now, it seems to me that's potentially too restrictive. If you're doing research with people with Alzheimer's disease, people with a learning difficulty, if you're asking them questions, if you're trying to look at the care that they're receiving, observing them in a care home, for example... It seems to me that you shouldn't necessarily have to go to a a National Health Service Research Ethics Committee for that. It might be that a university ethics committee would be an effective safeguard. It depends on the level of risk, obviously. Now, if you're exposing the person to some kind of invasive procedure, if you're giving them a medication – then I think it's completely different. You obviously need much more effective safeguards and then the National Health Service Research Ethics Committees are going to be the way to go. And in fact, for clinical trials, we have European law, we have a clinical trials directive that requires extra safeguards if we're doing drug trials, either on children or incapacitated adults. So we need to have a a mixture of safeguards. We need safeguards for... The kind of research that is being done by academics, which involves asking questions or observing. Uh, We need a different system to protect people from the risks involved in experimental treatment or uh, drug trials. So we want to have a, a system which protects people from risks, but which is not so restrictive that it prevents good ethical research from being done.
0: Thanks, Phil. It's obviously a controversial area, but at least that's clarified some of the issues for me. Thanks. The Open University.
1: For more information, go to www.open.edu forward iTunes